Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly. Coming up on today's episode, it's Wednesday, so it's PMQs Unpacked. Tim Shipman and I pause the action live from the House of Commons as Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer go at it. Then Lama Spirit Times Redbox reporter rounds up the best of the rest. That's coming up in just a moment, but first, it's The Columnists. The Columnists with Ali Burt, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. Yes, and it's a very good morning to Robert Crampton. Morning. Morning, Matt. Nice to see you. And Alice Thompson, morning. Morning. Alice, nice to have you both here in the studio as well. Mm. But you've been on your travels, Robert. Yeah, last week, I uh, the whole levelling up row, uh, or the possibility that levelling up might not be having such a prominence under, yeah. under the Rishi. Uh, so I went off to Blythe, just north of Newcastle, uh, which was a Labour seat from its inception in 1950 until 2019. Amazingly went Tory by 700 votes uh, to see what people up there made of the last three years. Uh, you know whether they thought their promises promises had been kept. What you know what whether they were going to vote Tory again. And what I discovered was that Blythe will not be Tory after the next election. We kind of knew that anyway with a majority of 700. But neither was there any great enthusiasm for. Labour, neither was there any great enthusiasm for Boris Johnson, which there is in some other parts of the North East. Uh, but there was no great enthusiasm for very much at all. Uh, and they haven't had any money. This was the day that uh, Rishi Sunak's yeah, own yeah. constituency of Richmond, which is a rather nice part of the world if you know it. I'm sure there are people who are suffering in Richmond, but they'd be, probably be fairly hard to find, whereas they're not hard to find at all in Blythe. That, and Richmond got a whole heap of money from the government and Blythe didn't, and you do wonder how this process is being decided. And even if you got some money in the sort of penny packets that they're giving it out in, you discover going to Blythe that it needs a great deal more than that. There's a town of 40,000 people without a railway station, for instance. Uh, and you're actually sprucing up the market square. Blythe, sprucing up the market square, which, is, which is what they have done, in yeah. fact, with a nice statue in the middle. It does not, he's not going to cut it. The, half of the shops around the, that same market square were empty, and a lot of the rest are charity shops or, or, or pound, poundland type shops. Uh, so it was a pretty miserable trip. Uh, one of the most miserable things about it was that when, you, uh, when I go out and do these stories, usually you discover there is an element of civic pride. We all find that moving yeah, around yeah, the country. Yeah. People like where they're from, they're proud of it. And I didn't find that particularly in Blythe. Uh, I mean, it's only a snapshot. You never quite know whether uh, you're, you're not necessarily getting a... It's not a scientific uh, piece of research. It's a snapshot. But people really unhappy, really miserable, and fed up with 
you know, feel left behind, don't feel levelled up at all. Well, and also, Alice, the problem with it is they feel, they already felt left behind and forgotten mm. and neglected, having voted Labour for such a long time. Yeah. Voting Conservative in these places was a sort of last throw of the dice, a desperate something, and then nothing's Nothing. happened. I mean, that, there's a story today in the Times as well on the front page, which is about the OECD countries, that the North has the, almost the lowest level of investment mm. uh, of any OECD country. And that is extraordinary that it's so far behind it has been. So it was a desperate last act, I think, for the Tories to, to come in and do something. And what is really depressing is that Rishi Sunak has just given it away to people who already have money. And we saw yeah. that in the summer. We forget that when he was doing his uh, campaign to become leader... <laughs> He stood up in Tunbridge Wells and said he was yes. going to help them out. He, yeah, I mean, yeah. he made it very clear that he was going to help those people what, out and the South out. And I think it must just be really frustrating now. Although, for actually, it's, although it's, actually, what he was actually talking about was saying that you know, places like Chatham, in, yeah. you know, not a million miles from Tunbridge Wells, they also of course have had a good we, time, we all, yeah, but they're not know, getting any better either. No, we know that the north-south divide is, is a is a very blunt instrument. We know that there's lots of poverty in along the Thames Estuary and along the, the, the coastal towns and Plymouth and Portsmouth and all the rest of it. And, you know, so. That's fair point, but you—it's those sharp elbow middle classes again. Once the middle, once the welfare state starts doling out money, whether it be in the form of nice state schools or waiting lists or anything, the, or the actually people, doing up the churches the, or doing the up people the, at the I mean, front of the queue are always the you know yeah. tend to be the uh, middle class people who can put together their document. And I suppose as well, because this all trace it, you, know, you can trace this back to uh, Brexit as well, which is now what, how long, seven years that'll that, be this year. That's the other point I made in Blythe, which is really tragic. Blythe was 60% yeah. voted for Leave. Again, a sort of roll of the dice, like let, let's try yeah. and, you know, a, a sort of jolt to the but system. You, but you look around for these, and then that was mostly about, yeah. we were told, mostly about immigration. You look around in vain for immigrants and for anybody in Blythe who hasn't got a white skin or a local accent. 3% foreign-born in Blythe constituency. And you do think, well, have those, were those people there in the first place? Were, they, were their numbers exaggerated? Or have they gone home? Or maybe they were all out of work while I was hanging about the market square, which is, I think, a bit of a, everything. Yeah. And you look at those places and you think, actually, what they need is more immigration, not less. Yeah. You could do wonders with a few uh, enterprising Syrians and, and Iranians in uh, in somewhere like Blythe. But, but it's quite often that, that debate about immigration is, is more to do with everything's going wrong, you know, I can't mm. get a job, my, you know, I can't get somewhere to live, all the shops are shutting. Mm. And, and a lot of the debate around immigration, particularly fueled by certain politicians, fuel this sort of they're getting all the help. Yeah. Yes. You know, so that that's... was the problem because it was housing, it was education, it was health. And if you look yeah. at it now, we've got a worse housing problem. Yeah. We've got a worse education problem in many areas. And we've got a terrible... You know, problem with the health service so nothing has got better and i think they would they were promised that it would get better and yeah. that they would have more and that you know everything all yeah. the resources would come to them and they just obviously haven't come and to there them. was this idea that we in the south we liked immigration because it meant we got cheap mm. labor and there was a certain degree of truth in that but i think uh the benefits of immigration in the north would far outweigh the fact that uh that uh, wage rates might come down a little bit for a plumber yeah, yeah. Uh, because you get people as you have in where where I live in East London, which is forty percent foreign born, and the people setting up businesses and cafes and mm. running the corner shops are Turks and uh, Afghanis and Iranians and who knows what. But they're not white British, yeah. white Brits. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think if you you had some of those people turning up in Blythe, you might start seeing a little bit of a turnaround in retail and in terms of. Uh, skills as well, because some of them would be arriving with with, uh, with with trades and skills. I suppose it's also just a reminder 
when, when everyone's talking about all oh, this poll showing this and mm. Rishi Sunak's got this panel, actually going to these places and remembering that there were real people on the end of all of those things. And that's why that currently Labour have got double the vote share of the Tories and all the But parties. also, I think yep. that Rishi Sunak's given up on them already. So I think he's just decided that he's yeah, not going to win that vote back. So there's no point in even trying. I mean, they are well, quite cynical about this. They're going to have to go for the votes they think they can get, aren't they? Yeah. We'll see how that all, uh, all pans out. Right, let's move on because I want to talk about toddlers. Precocious, <laughs> irritating toddlers. We'll do some of your stories in a minute because they've been excellent. But it's all been prompted by, well, Princess Eugenie's been talking about her son, August. My son's going to be like an activist from two years old, which is in a couple of days. Um, so... <laughs> Princess Eugenie there talking to, talking to Reuters. It comes after a boy who taught himself to read as a toddler, has been accepted as the youngest member of Mensa in the UK. He's only four, Teddy, from Portishead in Somerset. Apparently he can count to 100 in six other languages. Mm. Uh, he, this is what his mum uh, was saying. Mrs Hobbs said, he was playing on his tablet, making these sounds that I just didn't recognise. And I asked him what it was, and he said, Mummy, I'm counting in Mandarin. <laughs> well, there's quite a lot of humble brag, isn't there? About a little the bit. But I do think that... Uh, it's difficult if you are. I mean, I think, you know, you always... I just remember all those ones that... There was someone called Ruth, wasn't there, who managed to get her sort of O-level when she was 10. Ruth Lawrence. Yes, went, that was she it. Went and she went to Oxford when she was, when she was about yeah, 14. And, and then they always sort of disappear because they always tend to have very pushy parents. Yeah, yeah. And there's always a sort of slightly awkward relationship with their family. She, and had, then she they, ran around on a tandem with off, their dad, don't they? you remember? Yeah. And yeah. that happens in sport and that happens yeah. in education. Yeah. Music. Music. All the two-year-olds who, who can play a violin before yeah. they can walk. It's usually chess, chess music and Chess. Yeah. Chess. I think we're quite yeah. lucky. I mean, I do think that we're probably none of us here were child prodigies. And I no, think my kids are pretty useless, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> and we're not the they just. We were allowed to say that last week we were talking about how they were always bullying you. So this is yeah, you exactly. Getting your own exactly. I'm bullying them now. They weren't useless, but they were completely kind of average. Yeah, I remember in, in reading developed... one of those books when they had to be able to pick up a raisin by nine months. And yeah. actually, none of my children could do that. And I remember freaking, no. I never read a book again about childcare. I worried a little bit for Teddy. Is it Teddy, the Mensa, the Mensa yeah. kid? I, worry. I mean, I hope he's fine. I know, maybe he will be. And uh, his parents sound. Like they're looking after him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, I hope he's okay. He needs to put his, he's obviously, needs to put his intellect to good use. And Princess Eugenie, obviously, with her son, is starting him young. I mean, he can't even speak probably yet. Yeah, yeah, he's already a climate activist. A climate activist. Well, Well, it's interesting is she she acknowledged it. Um, he was too young now, but when he returns two in a couple of days, <laughs> then he can become a climate activist. Right. That's the that's cut off point, isn't it? Yeah, 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 membership. They just let children be children. That's what. Yeah, I yeah. mean, there's too much. There's too much testing. God, yeah. I really am turning into Alan Parsons. Just I about think children for children. <laughs> up until about eleven, yeah, yeah, yeah just let them run around, teach yeah. them to read and write, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, otherwise there's too much pressure, isn't there? If you're yeah. like, well, that's the it thing. can only go downhill. The whole point is for them to start at a low base and kind of slowly work your way Chill up. Chill out and then, yeah. pop, you know... Start at the top of the hill, you've had it, really, 16, pull out all the stops then. Yeah. Kind of muck about until then. Uh, let's turn our attention to uh, gay marriage and what is going on in the Church of England. Uh, the uh, And we can actually speak now to our religious affairs correspondent, Kaya Burgess. who can explain... Well, basically, they've come up with a compromise, which means nobody's happy, Kaya. <laughs> yeah, it, th- there's a great phrase, which is apparently the, the, the favourite snack in the Church of England is Anglican fudge. They'll always, <laughs> they'll always find a middle way. <laughs> Pleases no one. I mean, this process, it's been going on for years. There was a, a three-year process of kind of consultations up to 2017 that then kind of led nowhere. 
There's then been a six-year process of process of consultations and reports and documents and bishops having all these crunch meetings. And they finally come out and say, we're not changing the teaching of the Church of England. Gay people still can't get married in church. It's only one man and one woman who can get married. But if you're a gay couple who's got married elsewhere in a civil marriage, you can now come to church and a priest will give you a, a thanksgiving or a blessing <coughs> service and of course <coughs> traditionalists think this is the end of the world and it goes much too far campaigners for gay rights are saying well you're still classing gay people as second-class citizens and so even justin welby said yesterday that he's getting flack from all sides on this one and it's now reached the house of commons yeah well it was it was quite a debate as obviously a, a deeply cool person myself i always watch the questions in the commons <laughs> directed at um the second church estates commissioner who has a slightly um thankless task of being the sort of go between between the church and the house of commons and he was being just grilled it was andrew Sellis, the tory mp just being grilled by mps of what a, when a bishop's going to change their mind and of course he's got no idea so he just had to keep saying i will pass all these concerns back to the church of england <laughs> but, but um he, he was able to drop a few hints because one question that still hasn't been answered is priests obviously church of england priests can marry unlike catholic priests but gay priests are not allowed to marry it does sound like bishops might allow gay priests to have civil weddings now so that's a step forward and then um Wes Streeting was spoke quite movingly he said you know as it, it, one of the hardest things for him in coming out as a gay Anglican which was his phrase was was the attitude of the church and in the mm. end he decided just to stop coming to church altogether yeah. but, but he, <clears throat> he did ask would um it, it's up to each individual priest or, or church if they want to offer these blessings no, no priest will be forced to and he asked if they would be on offer to MPs in the chapel at parliament and, and Andrew Sellis did say that the chaplain to the speaker of the commons would be happy to offer them yeah. in, in the uh, the palace of Westminster that's interesting um, Alice you spoke to Richard Coles was it for yes. So I did my yeah, yeah, column yeah. on it today yes. as well that I feel very strongly about this. Having talked to Richard Coles, he is a, well, a former vicar now actually in, in Northumberland and he had a partner who was also a vicar and they weren't allowed, they were, they were sort of allowed to be partners but they weren't allowed to consummate their relationship and uh, though they lived in a vicarage together and they weren't allowed to get married or even have a civil blessing uh, or a one in a church. So they did it secretly about 12 years ago in a locked church. It was very dark. They couldn't have any music. They couldn't have you know, mm. candles. They couldn't have anything. And, yeah. and they, they're, they're both people who, you know, wanted to have a show. And, and actually, I think, think that was just so depressing, the idea yeah. that this amazing vicar, who's now resigned, actually, Richard yeah, Coles, yeah. who's one of our best vicars uh, and was in the communards, you know, you know, he's a great personality. It just felt awful to me. And he was very sad and he said he felt he was being treated as a second-class well, citizen. And I do genuinely, yeah. very strongly feel now that the Church of England got themselves in this ridiculous situation. So if they genuinely, if they thought that homosexuality was a sin, that, that is their decision. <laughs> but if they have this fudge whereby you can have a blessing, but you still can't get it's married... It's a bit sinny. It is like but, being a second-class citizen, yeah, yeah, because yeah. actually having a blessing, you know, actually ships can have blessings, pets can have blessings, yeah. you know. It, it's treating them like an object, but at the same time, it's not letting them go the full way. And that's the uh, problem, Robert, isn't it? Is it... If, if, yeah, if it's just the view that the, the gay couples are a bad thing and we're not going to endorse them or... Which is, a, which is the view of certain elements. Which is the view of certain elements. Then I, at least hold yeah. that line. But yeah, I mean, that's you, you can't be a little bit... The Anglican Church in parts of uh, yeah. West Africa thinks, yeah, yeah. Thinks, thinks that and that's caused endless problems with the international church. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's awful. I mean, and the, and the result is that people like West Streeting stops going to church, mm. people like Richard Cole stops being a vicar. I wrote, I wrote a little thing in my T2 column yesterday about champing. That is the way oh, yeah, you go camping in a church. Overnight in a church. Well, which presumably means that some people are having sex in churches. Some people might even be having gay sex in churches, but they can't. And the church is willing to, you know, for them You've to... You've been camping before, have you? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? You can, you can, you, you can pay to stay in a church overnight yeah, yeah, yeah. With, your, with your partner, presumably... Yeah. And uh, maybe, do, maybe, do, they, maybe they padlock you into your sleeping bag. <laughs> you do whatever you want to do, but you can't get married. Yeah. Well, the church are only doing the, the, the champing because they need to get more people into churches. Yeah. So what they're actually doing is saying, on one hand, we want more people, we want more young to come in and you know have fun yeah. in a church. But then they're saying, but actually, if you're gay, we're not going yeah, to celebrate yeah, yeah. you. So we don't want you to come. And I, and I think that's rather depressing. It's a bit straightforward gay. prejudice is what it is. Mm. Well, it's homophobia, and that's yes. what we should say. Yeah. And that's what yeah. the Archbishop of Canterbury... They've got an even weirder situation where the Archbishop of Canterbury is not going to bless gay partnerships mm. but the Archbishop of York will so that they're actually you know split down the middle on that and they yeah. think that's a sort of clever compromise but it just looks insane that one of you will do it and one of you won't um, yeah. Kyrie, that, yeah. sort of I mean I'm not going to draw direct parallels but when I don't know the, the World Cup is in Qatar and suddenly oh, actually there is all right to drink alcohol because there's yeah. loads of money at stake or is it who is it is it Ronaldo I might be clutching at straws Ronaldo's here, gone is, to Saudi Arabia and he's allowed to live with his partner even though he's not married even though normally that would be frowned upon but again yeah, yeah. This is Kyrie, this is ultimately the problem isn't it when you have very strong doctrines but it turns out you know they're not that strong they're not that strong yeah, although well, the, the Church of England's got this issue where where it it, it, it Justin Welby is is really 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 keen to the point of obsession on this phrase disagreeing well, and so the Church of England when when they voted to allow women to become bishops um, eight nine years ago, they created this whole phenomenally complex system where women can become bishops now, but if you're a parish that doesn't believe women should become bishops, you're told well that's still fine, and if there's a woman who's a bishop in your area, you're allowed to essentially reject her and request a male bishop from somewhere else to be in charge of you because you don't want to be and it's all about trying to keep everyone inside the tent all the mm, time mm. um but that's the, the thing that makes it difficult i think is the fact that this would always be an opt-in process no no priest would ever if the church of england did go for same-sex marriage no priest would ever be forced to do it against their conscience and so it would really just be saying to the hundreds possibly thousand plus priests out there who would be perfectly happy to marry gay couples well you go ahead and get marry gay couples if you want to and those priests who don't want to wouldn't have to but you then end up in like the gay cake problem that you or you end up with protests outside the church where the priest saying you won't do because that is no, you've then, already had that with the women so i think actually you know the women you can choose whether or not you have a female yeah. So you can do exactly the same, that vicars can just opt in or opt out. That, that would be the same way yeah. of doing it, and that would be actually the compromise, the proper compromise, I mean, because then it works for, you choose it works the church. And, yeah. and Kai has done some sorry, brilliant on, pieces, haven't you, on, on the fact that you then it's all been clandestine, so you get these people getting effectively married in churches, but illegally. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, um, someone pointed out that priests have... Uh, a very long time been finding ways around these kind of bans by offering rather than blessing a same-sex marriage they've been blessing the wedding rings of the couple which sort mm. of gets around it and so it's sort of just catching up with with what the practice is but in all the other countries that the, the episcopal church which is the anglican church in scotland 
um, the Anglican Church in the United States. They've been doing same-sex marriage for a while now. The church in Wales has started doing blessings. The world hasn't fallen apart. They haven't been beset by protests. It all seems to be working perfectly And it shouldn't well. be something that's clandestine. I mean, you had clandestine mixed-race marriages under apartheid and people got round it, but it's not something that we would encourage. Yeah. Robert Cramps and Alice Thompson, of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is PMQ's Unpacked. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. And Tim Shipman's here. Were you a young person in journalism once, Tim? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> You've always been a middle-aged person in journalism. So, uh, what do we expect from PMQs today? are Now, it's interesting, of course, because at PMQs last week, Rishi Sunak made clear that he thought that it was all done and dusted, all the questions we answered, nothing more to see well, here. let's find out, shall we? Because he's going to get at least three, if not six more questions now. And yeah. we'll see how well the Prime Minister is able to answer them. And I think the usual political tactic of not answering questions uh, in Prime Minister's question time is going to be a bit more problematic this week because if he genuinely doesn't have uh, some answers, um, that's only going to fuel, uh, the, the, you know, let's call it a scandal, I suppose, um, you know, certainly what, fuel the sense that, that Zahawi needs to go and that Downing Street haven't got a grip on this. What are the particular questions that, that you think he needs to answer, or at least it's worth Keir Starmer asking? Well, Starmer's going to want to know what, what the Prime Minister knew and when he knew it, and based on what he knew, why did he take the decisions that he did? Um, you know, Sunak has fallen back on the classic technique of pump this all off to an invest, independent investigator in the hope that you can say, um, it's not up to me, it's up to them. But, you know, to a lot of people, that looks like an abrogation of the Prime Minister's responsibility to take a decision. Um, and, you know, 
even as we wait for the verdict of this um, uh, sage figure, um, you know, the evidence piles up and more stories are being written and, you know, the other questions pertain to the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, who has been there throughout the premierships of uh, Boris Johnson and um, uh, Liz Truss and now Rishi Sunak um, and was in the room, would have known what was going on and there are some questions there about... You know, what did he know about um, Zahavi's tax affairs and why, when he was being appointed to different roles, was that not drawn more broadly to the attention of the Prime Minister's making those decisions? Because it seems like not only was Zahavi made Chancellor by um, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, when Kwasi when Kwarteng was removed by Liz Truss, Zahawi was in contention to be Chancellor again and was apparently cleared to do that or another job. Um, and then Rishi Sunak's brought him back in as party chairman. Each of those decisions would normally come with in- input from the propriety and ethics team and from the Cabinet Secretary about whether there was anything hanging over these uh, the, the minister in question as to whether they could do those jobs. Now, you know, it'd be interesting to see if Sunak feels that he got all the information he needs. Um, and if he didn't, why didn't he? And what's your understanding of the when those... Because obviously he was in the Cabinet before. Is it is it a particular problem with him becoming Chancellor that sort of sounded alarm bells? Or would it... The orders have been flagged when he joined the Cabinet as Education Secretary? Well, this sort, sort of thing ought to be flagged, regardless of the job you're doing. But clearly it's more acute if you're the bloke handling the nation's finances. Um, and certainly part of the embarrassment for Nadim Zahawi and the Tory party in the last week has been that... You know, here he was, the bloke in charge of the Exchequer, negotiating with the Exchequer. Now, Tories will say, well, look, he paid a huge fine and paid lots of tax, and that shows the system works, that even the chance of the Exchequer can be um, uh, made to cough up. Um, but I think people looking at it from outside would say it's rather odd if, um, you know, uh, the boss is effectively um, having to cough up money to his underlings. Um, and did he really pay enough? Um, you know, those are the... the one imagines that HMRC did this in the right way, but the perception that this is all very cosy, yeah. you know, uh, which is added to by the fact that the Prime Minister has uh, recruited to look into this, the father of his own uh, policy uh, director, um, and that, um, you know, uh, there's quite a lot of sort of um, jobs for mates running yeah. around in this. And, you know, that just contributes to the notion that, you know, often afflicts the Tory party that... Um, you know, they can become, after a period of time in power, um, as interested in a cosy cabal of people they know uh, as they are in getting on with running the country. So just a reminder then, at PMQ's last week, Alex Sobel, Labour MP, asked the Prime Minister, uh, this month, Nadim Zahai was forced to pay millions to HMRC to settle a tax dispute. Was the Prime Minister aware of the investigation when he appointed him to his cabinet and as chairman of the Conservative Party? Will the Prime Minister demand accountability from his cabinet members over their tax affairs? And Rishi Sunak replied, my vulnerable friend has already addressed the matter in full and there is nothing more that I can add. I suspect he's going to have to add a little bit more to that as we go live to the House of Commons. This is question number one from Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This week we will remember the six million Jews murdered in the Holocaust and all those scarred by genocide since as we mark Holocaust Memorial Day. We must all commit across this House to defeat prejudice and hatred wherever we may find it. To work for a better future, we must find light in the darkness. I can also join the Prime Minister in wishing everyone a happy Burns night. Mr Speaker, 
Zara Alina was walking home from a night out with her friends when she was savagely attacked, assaulted and beaten to death. Zara was a brilliant young woman, a trainee lawyer with a bright future. Her killer is a violent, racist, woman-hating thug, not fit to walk the same streets. But that's precisely the problem. He was free to walk the same streets. The inspectorate report into her case says that opportunities were missed by the probation service that could have prevented this attack and saved her life. Does the Prime Minister accept those findings? Mr Speaker, this was a truly terrible crime. And as the Chief Inspector has found the failings in this case, and indeed others, were serious and indeed unacceptable. In both of the cases that are in the public domain, these these failures can be traced to failings in the initial risk assessment, and that's why immediate steps are being taken to address the serious issues raised. Well, we got it all wrong. I suspect the Deems of High will come up, but yeah, first, I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty uh, sure that you know. But this is a classic rum-footing technique yeah. from from Labour uh, to go on, you know, a hard and serious subject which affects you know the lives of uh, of the punters. Um, and I would be very surprised if we didn't hear before the end of this section of questions the phrase "lethal chaos," which is what um, Starmer used last week yes. um, to talk about ambulances, yeah, and yeah. this week the former director of public prosecutions seems to want to talk about probation and the problems there and this sense that stuff just isn't working. Stuff isn't working. And actually, and and it goes back to, you know, people out of the public eye. We don't talk talk about probation services very often. But in this terrible case, John McSweeney uh, attacked Zarelina uh, in June last year, just nine days after his release on licence from prison, having been wrongly assessed as medium risk. And it's not the only case. We were talking about this with... David Wanovich, uh, earlier in the week, because he wrote his column on it last week, there were other cases where those, those decisions uh, were wrong. Notably, Rishi Sunak uh, didn't seem to make any great defence of it. He read out, you know, what was clearly... In that, the whole point of him having that folder is there were lines to take on every possible topic that could be thrown at him. Yeah, that's right. And also, it's you know he would be aware of the case, and it's a, a pretty easy one to um, emote about and to think, you know, that something went wrong. Um and there's plenty of uh, government politicians who think the probation services are total shambles as well. Yeah. Um, clearly, um, ministers um, are where the buck stops with these things. But, um, you know, you can think back to numerous cases. Um, you know, even the former prime minister's wife, uh, Carrie Johnson, you know, led a campaign about probation service findings about um, John Warboys, the, um, the black cab rapist. Um, and, you know, uh, it's been a long theme you know, going back years, that um, the probation service doesn't get some of these rulings right. Yeah. Uh, with, with, I suppose, unlike some of the other parts of the, the state, with terrible, terrible consequences. Let's go back and see uh, see what uh, Keir Starmer has to say for question number two on PMQ's Unpacked. Keir Starmer. I'm glad he accepts those findings. The report also says that staffing vacancies and excessive workloads contributed to those fatal failures. And it makes absolutely clear this was not a one-off. As the report says, these are systemic issues in the probation service. They're clearly ministerial responsibilities. 
Yep. Does the Prime Minister accept those findings as well? Yeah. Yeah. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, let me outline for the Honourable Gentleman exactly what steps we are taking, and that's to include and that's to ensure that mandatory training to improve risk assessments is being put in place. It's mandating checks with the police and children's services before a probation officer can recommend to the court that a convicted offender be given electronically monitored offence and implementing new processes to guarantee the swift recall of offenders. And the action we are taking is already making a difference as, for example, we see in the reduction of the number of electronically monitored curfews being given by the courts. Interesting, Rishi Sunat talking about uh, mandatory training, mandatory checks, all the things you'd have thought might have been there before. Uh, yeah, and um, I mean, it read very much like he was reading, didn't it? Yeah. Um, that, that looked like, um, you know, the, the golden tab yeah. on, in his box had come to save him there. Um, it didn't feel like a subject he was particularly au fait with. Um, but yeah, so Starmer moving on from horrible tragedy to whose fault is it? and, um, you know, building his argument. Um, as ever, with most of the things um, that are problematic in British public life at the moment, there's a shortage of staff, um, people are doing too much, um, and the Prime Minister, if he was answering honestly, would say, there ain't much money around at the moment, and what are your priorities? Um, and uh, But it's a very difficult one to get into that argument. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, he's not standing on particularly on, on uh, firm ground at the moment. Luke on the uh, on the YouTube channel said this is the tamest and most reasonable I've ever seen them both. I suppose that that you know I, I think that's probably made, meant as a compliment that they're both actually trying to address issues and trying to solve the problem rather than just hurling abuse at each other. Will it last? That's the big question. Uh, you can watch along on the YouTube on the Times Radio YouTube channel. We go back to the comments. This is question number three from Keir Starmer. Starmer, Mr. Speaker, it was Barking, Dagenham, and Havering that tragically and fatally let Zara down. But across the country, probation services are failing after a botched, then reversed privatisation. After a decade of underinvestment, it's yet another vital public service on its knees after 13 years of Tory government. I spoke to Zara's family this morning. It's hard to convey to this House the agony that they've been through. They say that the government has blood on their hands over these failings. He's accepted the findings of the report. Does he also accept what Zara's family say? Yeah. Yeah. Prime Minister. Well, Mr Speaker, my heart, of course, goes out to Zara's family. He mentioned accountability. The probation services has taken action where failings have been found and where that has been appropriate. And with regard to the overall service, because of the extra investment we're putting in, there's now £155 million a year being put into the probation service so that we can deliver better supervision of offenders. There's also been an increase in the number of senior probation officers. But one of the other things we must remember, Mr Speaker, if we do want to increase the safety of women and girls out on our streets, that we need tough sentencing. And that's why this government passed the Police Crime and Sentencing Act, which the Honourable Gentleman opposite and his party opposed. Um, the thing that le leapt out for me there was getting more political from uh, Keir Starmer, uh, talking about the probation service was uh, privatised, the botched privatisation, as he called it. Um, people with long memories remember that was carried out by Chris Grayling. 
uh, he privatised it in 2014, and then in 2020 they brought it back in-house uh, uh, to a fully restored public ownership and control. I mean, I suppose to some extent, the fact that two years old we're still getting these problems is a sign that, that nobody really quite knows what to do with the probation service. No, I suspect that's right. Um, I think the way, you know, think back to what Starmer used to do when he first got the job. He would often fall back on territory that he was kind of familiar with. He did a lot of legal stuff. He knew about it. He was trying to show, I know what I'm talking about. But this is much more kind of uh, structured and pointed and talking about, you know... In fact, he hasn't, he hasn't said, I, he I've, did, I've prosecuted these cases. No. He's not done, I was director of public prosecutions. No, and he's picked up the phone to the family, which is... That's, good, that's good deft politics, yeah, yeah. and 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 got the phrase "blood on your hands" into the yeah. you know into Hansard and onto the TV, um, you know. So this is you know it's just another example of how Labour has kind of got its act together. Little bit of fight back from Sunak though, um, you know, talking about tougher sentencing. That's the first kind of bit where I think he felt sort of he needed to um, say something for the people behind him and to. Uh, you know, make a political point of his own. Um, maybe he thinks it's only three questions and he needed to get that in before that in Starmer he, moves he, on. He might be ready to move on, but we'll find out now. Uh, this is Times Radio, PMQ's Unpacked. Listen along on the radio. You can watch along on the Times Radio YouTube channel, as lots of you are. Uh, yeah, let's find out. Is, is this the moment that Keir Starmer is going to mention the Deems of Harvey, as we predicted at the beginning? Let's go back to the House of Commons, question number four. In light of the case of... Zara, I really don't think the Prime Minister should be boasting about the protection that he's putting in place for women. And I'm not going to take lectures from him about that. Does the Prime Minister agree that any politician who seeks to avoid the taxes they owe in this country is not fit to be in charge of taxpayer money? Well, Mr Speaker, I'm pleased to make my position on this matter completely clear to the House. The issues, the issues in question occurred before I was Prime Minister. With regard, with regard, to, the appointment, with regard to the appointment of the Minister without portfolio, the usual appointments process was followed. No issues... No issues were raised with me when he was appointed to his current role. And since I commented on this matter last week, more information has come forward. And that is why I have asked the independent adviser to look into the matter. Now, I obviously can't prejudge the outcome of that, but it is right... But it is right that we fully investigate this matter and establish all the facts. Well, here we are. Beep, um, beep, beep, <laughs> beep. That is the sound of a truck being reversed over the Cabinet Secretary. I'll put it to you. <laughs> Simon Case, of course. Simon Case. Who is, the, uh, who is very much the constant in all of this. He was there for Boris Johnson, he was there for Liz Truss, and he's still there now for Rishi Sunak. And so, Sunak is very clear that none of this was raised with him when he appointed Zahawi. So why wasn't it? Um, now, that looks slightly cowardly, but if it's true, um, it does give the PM some protection, um, and it's uh, always cowardly to go after officials. But, um, you know, if he wasn't told, he wasn't told. Um, but he's now put that out there. But given and if there, there is were... any evidence that that is not the case, then the Prime Minister is going to be in big trouble. 
Is it is there a, is there a responsibility on Rishi Sunak himself, given that there were stories around last summer about Nadim Zahawi? Should he ask? Should he have asked the question, or maybe he did ask the question? But I was all right. Or is it down to the officials around him to sound the alarm? I think the job of uh, certainly of the proprietary and ethics team is to draw attention to potential problems. And I've heard numerous cases in these reshuffles where people have said, mm, I, wouldn't, I don't think you should give a job to them, Prime Minister, because um, they've got something hanging over them or there's a problem or there's a potential issue. Um, and those things are normally drawn to people's attention in that process and not just the Prime Minister but to the team around them. That said, um, Nadim Zahawi has been asked quite a lot of questions about this by various uh, journalists and doesn't have a magnificent track record of uh, uh, total Full candor. disclosure. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, and the Times reported today that the, the people close to Liz Truss make it clear that nobody said anything to her about there being an issue when she gave him a job as Cabinet Office Minister. Yeah. Uh, so do we know... We or indeed, when she was considering him as a possible return to the Treasury after she'd got rid of quasi Kwarteng. And do, we don't know if anyone's raised an, an issue when Boris Johnson was... Uh, try, I mean, there were quite we a few... Mr. Mr Johnson has yet to illuminate us with there that information. There were times last summer. There were feeble times, and Mr Johnson has issues of his own that he keeps being asked questions about in the public sphere. Well, we'll, uh, we'll uh, see. So, yeah, it's quite a lot to, um, uh, quite a lot to unpack uh, there. Um, I'm quite intrigued by like, more information has come forward since last week. It was not... I mean, the story was in the Sun a week ago, just over, but ten days ago now, that he'd paid a, a settlement with HMRC. You do wonder if Rishi Sunak possibly ought to have asked slightly more questions before last week's BMQs. I mean, it's certainly... It, some politicians are not avid readers of the newspapers in a way that we might imagine, um, and I think some of them... Um, uh, would rather not be told yeah. uh, whether that is the case don't in this instance. Questions, I don't it? know. Though I think probably, you know, Nadim Zahawi isn't really some great buddy of Rishi Sunak's. He was one of those people who got a job, he'd run for leader, um, you know, it, there was some kind of continuity there. He was seen as a, a sort of medium-sized beast. Um, I don't, you know, no-one's really ever said that, you know, Sunak put Zahawi in there because he was some great buddy. He was one of just one of those sort of people who it was felt that ought to be given a job. So um slightly unfortunate for the for the Sunakians that they've now got caught. It's always, um, it's always amazing though that the, the, the journalists with half of you know access to half the information managed to turn up more than the Prime Minister asking a question of his officials. But there we are I quite like the idea of being a medium sized beast. Well, he's not quite a big beast, is he? He's not a big he? beast, no. Even, you know, whatever it was, two months as Chancellor of the Exchequer doesn't quite make no. a big... I mean, I think he always used to make quite a big watch. Yes, he's, well, he's, a, you know, he's, he's a, a wealthy well, man, well, as we've discovered. Yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe that's what he spent his, the money he saved on. Uh, right, let's go back to the House of Commons now. Uh, let's see if uh, Keir Summers going to uh, persevere with this. We're now to question number five. Mr Speaker... He avoided the question. I think any, anybody watching would think it's fairly obvious that someone who seeks to avoid tax can't also be in charge of tax. Yet, for some reason, the Prime Minister can't bring himself to say that or even acknowledge the question. Now, last week, the Prime Minister told this House that the chair of the Tory party had addressed his tax affairs in full and there was nothing to add. This week, after days of public pressure, the Prime Minister now says... There are serious questions to answer. What changed? Yeah. Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, may, 
I know, I know he reads from these prepared sheets, but he should listen to what I actually say. Mr. Sunak is leaning on his folder of prepared so, sheets. So, since I commented on this matter last week, more information, including a statement, including a statement by the Minister Without Portfolio, has entered the public domain, which is why it's right that we do establish the facts. And, and Mr. Speaker, let me, let, me take, let me take a step back. Let me take a step back. Now, of course, of course, of course, the politically expedient thing to do would be for me, would be for me to have said that this matter must have been resolved by Wednesday at noon. But I believe in proper due process. That's why, that's why I appointed an independent adviser, and that's why the independent adviser is doing his job. But the opposition can't have it both ways. The shadow leader, his, also his party chair, both urged me and the government to appoint an independent adviser. And now he objects to that independent adviser doing their job. It's simple political opportunism, and everyone can see through it. <laughs> I mean, if I was the Nadeem Zahawi, I'd be pretty worried if the Prime Minister is willing to admit in the, cabinet, in the dispatch box that politically the right thing to do is to sack him. Yes. It would be, of course, it would be the politically expedient thing to do. Well, or to order the independent um, yeah. uh, advisor to come up with his independent answer before Prime Minister's question time. Do you want to address the, the lack of independence of the independent advisor, given that he's appointed by Rishi Sunak? He's not independent of Rishi Sunak at all. Well, none of them ever have been. Yeah. And they have a mysterious habit of finding what the Prime Minister hopes that they would find. And if they don't, the Prime Minister has a habit of ignoring them. Yes. Well, yeah. the previous one did. Or, one, or, of the, one of the one previous of, ones yeah. did. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a bravura attempt, you know, accusing the leader of the opposition of political opportunism. One is tempted to say that in cases like this, that's kind of the leader of the opposition's job. And it's, it's sort of the last resort of a prime minister who doesn't really have anything else to accuse no, but, the leader but, of the opposition of playing politics. But still the sort of slight indignant tone from Sunak, who genuinely does believe in process. He's that dull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He really, really believes in sitting down and doing everything properly. But unfortunately, what that can often lead to in situations like this um, is that Rishi Sunak is not immediately quick to see the way the wind is blowing. Uh, the same thing happened, whisper it quietly, over his wife's tax affairs, where well, he I didn't, didn't really see that. the There's problem. There's a bit of needling from... from I mean, that, that question which he's now used twice, uh, Keir Starmer, saying, uh, should someone who's in charge... Should someone who uh, tries to avoid paying tax be in charge of the nation's tax? I mean, it's not very far from the issue that, that, Keir Star that Rishi Sunak had about non-dom status of his wife. Well, I mean, maybe that Starmer is building up to make that point mm. in his final uh, question. But, um, you know, Sunak, you know, a lot of people who know Sunak quite well think he's, you know, reasonably good at turning up and doing the job and, you know, a serious bloke, genuinely believes in process, but his sort of fingertip touch for politics is not as acute as it might be. That's why he didn't see this coming. Um, and it's uh, why he has responded quite slowly um, to... Um, uh, a story gathering pace, um, and you know he'll be hoping that um, the independent yeah. advisor gives him a simple way out, whichever um, you know, whichever way that is. 
Loads of you getting in touch about this, wondering where, where Nadim Zahawi is. Well, he's not sitting on the government front bench, so far as I can see. Uh, Michael, though, has been in touch saying, Matt, your very bitchy take on Sunak demeans you and Shipman. Focusing on a big watch is genuinely pathetic. Be professional, please. Actually, we're talking about Nadim Zahawi's big watch, not Rishi Sunak's. Yeah, a big watch would look slightly odd on Rishi Sunak's (laughs) wrist. I think he's got like a a little Disney one, hasn't he? Mickey Mouse's arms going around. I have uh, no knowledge of the Prime Minister's watch. <laughs> Boris Johnson used to wear a very cheap watch. That yeah. much I do remember. It was about five Jer- quid. Jeremy Brown had a selection of different coloured watches that he'd wear depending, you know, to coordinate with his tie. The person with the best watch collection in <laughs> Parliament is um, uh, Brandon Lewis, who has a, a series of astonishingly expensive watches. Does he? He does. Does he? There's a feature in that. I'll get that on, get on that. My, my watch, watch of the week. Uh, 87222, start to the word times. If you want to get in touch, you can post your comments along on the uh, YouTube channel. Here we go. Uh, this is question number six, then, from Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer, we all know why the Prime Minister was reluctant to ask his party chair questions about family finances and tax avoidance. <laughs> and there we have it, a reference to... Uh, but, but his... Oh, two Labour MPs shouting more. the whole country can see what's going on shows how hopelessly weak he is. A Prime Minister overseeing chaos, overwhelmed at every turn. He can't say when ambulances will get to heart attack victims again. He can't say when the prison system will keep streets safe again. He can't even deal with tax avoiders in his own cabinet. Is he starting to wonder if this job is just too big for him? It's a height joke, that, isn't it? Michael on the text won't like that. Mr Speaker, the difference between him and me is that I stand by my values and my principles even when it is difficult. When I disagreed fundamentally with the previous Prime Minister, I resigned from the government. But for four... But for four, but for four long years, he sat next to the member for Islington North. When, oh, that's when a Jeremy Corbyn. There we are. Ran right when his predecessor sided with our opponents. That's what's weak, Mr. Speaker. He has no principles and just petty politics. That oh, was that it. There we are. No principles, just petty politics. Well. We had all of the... I mean, you're right that in the end, uh, Keir Starmer tried to tie it all together, talking about you can't do anything about ambulance times, which is what he went on on PMQs last week, safety on our streets, and then propriety in the Cabinet, trying to sort of knot yeah, it all together. Yeah, he didn't use lethal chaos, though, which I thought he would, because yeah. that would have been perfectly legitimate to uh, to use that phrase again, which I thought was quite effective. Um, but the sort of the little jibe, you know, this is just all too big for him, is uh, it's quite an interesting kind of... Uh, semi-heightist uh, attack that um, is just sort of saying this poor little fellow's completely overwhelmed by all this. But Sunak's response did not seem particularly sure-footed. You know, um, when he's boasting about resigning from Boris Johnson's government, the one thing that most of his own party holds against him. Yeah. Um, and then resorting to Boris Johnson's attack lines on Jeremy Corbyn, um, you know, you look down that front bench, it didn't look like a cabinet that was particularly enjoyable. I'm not sure. Today. I'm not sure. I quit uh, to get rid of Boris Johnson, but you didn't quit to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn. It's going to fly at the next election. 
No, and um, you know, uh, the Tories badly need some Starmer gear that is not just replaying these old tropes. Um, you know, there are criticisms of Keir Starmer that you can make, and that the Tories will make at the next election that you know he changes his mind that he's not he doesn't necessarily stick to the things that mm. he said in uh, the past that he's rather dull um and that you know um but the sort of charge that he's just this sort of manic political operative is a slightly curious <laughs> one given that for a long time Starmer was uh, very far from being uh, that kind of character um if anything he was sort of too punctilious in the other direction yeah, yeah. now he's got some more game his team around him have sharpened him up um uh, but um, that you know, nothing that Sunak's just come out with sounds like anything that's going to cause the Labour Party any problems up to the next general election. And if your complaint is basically you're getting a bit too good at playing politics, then that's sort of saying saying the bit out loud that maybe you, you well, and only you know, drawing, drawing attention to the fact that a lot of people think you know yeah, yeah. Sunak might be a good at government, but he's terribly good at politics himself. Um, and I think this will be people will want this resolved on the, in the Conservative Party pretty fast. Um, and I suspect uh, the bulk of them would like to see the Prime Minister yeah. step up, look decisive and get rid of Nadeem Zahawi and get this problem off the front pages. Uh, Lara Spirit, Times Red Box reporter, is here. How are you? Hi, Matt. I'm well, thank you. So you're bringing us the best of the rest. You've been watching the rest of the questions so that we don't have to. I have been, yeah. And some great. Oh, good. That's it. Talk it up. Make it so. <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay Stick tuned. around. Right. Yeah, don't go anywhere. It's all going to kick off. Uh, Lara, where are we going first? So we're going first to Stephen Flynn to take a listen to this. He is asking the second question, uh, and it's quite a classic example of the sort of SNP uh, in Prime Minister's Question scorecard, where you try and take all of the worst stories for the government in the week, and then you lump it together and say, isn't everyone in Scotland going to be absolutely furious and dismayed by this? So just listen to this. I'm not sure what question the Prime Minister thought I asked, but that certainly was not it, Mr Speaker. But let's, let's be clear about this. This is now a matter of the Prime Minister's own integrity and accountability. After all, when there was questions about the Home Secretary, the Secretary and concerns about her role in relation to national security, he chose to back her. Now the chair of the Tory party, he's choosing to back him despite a £5 million penalty from HMRC. And of course, he's seeking to protect the former Prime Minister despite his cosy financial relationship with the chair of the BBC. Is it little wonder that people in Scotland may well just consider the Tory party to be a parcel of rogues? Mr Speaker... Mr Speaker, what I'm standing up for is proper due process. That's why we have an independent advisor. It's right that the independent advisor conducts his investigation. That's how we will ensure accountability, and that's what I will deliver. Rob Roberts! Parcel of rogues is a good turn of phrase. Oh, that's good. I like that. I wonder if Starmer will nick that. You parcel of rogues. Now, um, for those of you not watching on the YouTube channel, we can see uh, Ian Blackford sitting slightly forlornly behind Stephen Flynn, where he used to do these... PMQs before Just Stephen. a humble crofter. Just a humble crofter again now. Now, Stephen now Flynn... a humble backbencher. Now, one thing that struck me, Lara, Stephen Flynn standing up, one hand in, a, in his pocket <laughs> and no notes. No, you're right, yeah. He's actually doing it properly. He's, you know, he knows what he wants to say and he's performing. He does seem to be giving a pretty assured performance in Prime Minister's questions. You know, he seems relatively confident when he stands up. Uh, I think you'd expect first few showings to be a little bit nervous but actually he seems uh he's beginning in the groove i mean the SNP do just have a very well-oiled process of doing these questions right 
their couple, they often stand up, they manage to take whatever it is that's been embarrassing to the government and they say that it's a perfect case for independence well made. So, I mean, <laughs> nothing new there. I love well. Flynn. I love him. He's like, a, there's sort of the suppressed violence every time he stands <laughs> up. It's sort of, uh, he looks like if you encountered him, you know, in a, on a Saturday evening, he might give you a very good pointed question or he might just nut you. Um, um, I've just realised Parcel of Rogues is uh, is uh, such a parcel of rogues in a nation is a Scottish folk song whose lyrics are taken from a poem written oh, by Robert Burns. Ah, oh, a Burns see, night. A little Burns night nod there. Yeah. And, stu- and good old Sunak's response, he's standing up for due process. I mean, they're literally in the streets now, aren't they, going, what do we want? <laughs> Standing up for due process. When do we want it? At a time that seems appropriate yeah. if the due process has been followed. You're quite right. We don't want you to sack the person that everyone else thinks you need to and will sack until you've gone through a process of which you are the arbiter of. And Yeah, anyway, decide. Right, good. Well, that was Stephen Flint, leader of the SNP. What about the back benches? What have we got, Laura? So um, just, you know, to uh, stress my powers of premonition earlier, I think you remember me saying that I thought there'd be a question or maybe two on the, on the unsuccessful levelling up yes. from last week. And the second question of the day, uh, Marco Longhi, the uh, oh, MP for Dudley, stood up uh, and said, very disappointed to have not uh, got his bid, but he hopes the Prime Minister will meet with him. And I thought that Rishi Sunak's response to this uh, was quite interesting because we haven't, had a, we haven't had that much by way of government response to the fallout from what was quite a messy comms operation. Well, particularly because when he wants to be week. talking about levelling up, he ended up having to talk about... Seat belts, <laughs> <laughs> which is a slight problem. So we're going to hear, yeah, we're going to hear from, to hear, this, hear from yeah. Mark along. Here we go. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. Uh, while I was disappointed that Dudley did not make the final cut in the latest levelling up funding round, I am, of course, pleased that we received the £25 million towns deal, a, the, the brand-new Duncan Edwards leisure facility and a transport interchange project secured since my election in 2019. But, but, (laughs) our high street, Mr Speaker, is on its knees. So will the Prime Minister meet with me and Dudley Council to discuss our levelling up bid and how we can ensure success in the next round? Well, Mr Speaker, my honourable friend is a great advocate for his constituents. Well, not that great, because he didn't get the money last time. And I'm delighted that, thanks to his efforts, Dudley has received £25 million from the Towns Fund. I know there will be disappointment about the levelling up fund, but all bids, including that made by Dudley Council, can receive feedback to strengthen their bid for future rounds of funding. And I would be very happy to meet him further to discuss. There we are. He's got his meeting. Give it another go. Yeah. Brilliant advocate. Well done. But the point is, Laura, that it takes quite a lot for a Tory MP to use PMQs to even hint at criticism of the Prime Minister. Yeah, so he's evidently not very happy with the outcome of this, uh, and it reflects what quite a few of us have been hearing from Tory MPs, some of whom were, uh, you know, asked to shout loud and proud about uh, this levelling up fund, only to feel uh, bitterly disappointed and quite foolish when they weren't uh, selected as part of uh, that bid. But I thought, you know, Rishi Sunak keen to stress the Towns Fund. It was interesting, quite a lively chamber today, but interesting to hear colleagues kind of cheer quite a lot when you heard about that Towns Fund. There's definitely quite a concerted effort going on to stress that this two billion fund from last week is just one part of a wider levelling up uh, package. So, of course, devolution deals are massive part of that. I mean, if you think about the North East, that got a 1.4 billion devolution deal uh, before Christmas. I suppose that's, that's the trouble huge. with the levelling up thing last week sounded like, this is it. This is, this is the, the entirety of levelling up. Exactly. And it just exactly. isn't. Um, and also, you know, that allusion to the to the third process and, uh, and the fact that Marco can get some feedback if he didn't quite, if he didn't quite <laughs> fill out his forms properly. 
Uh, yeah, lots of you getting in touch about why I didn't know that Parcel of Rogues was a Burns <laughs> quote. Uh, but I, also, significantly, it was a diatribe against people who signed the Act of Union, so yeah, it's same. even more appointed, sort even of... Even more appointed. Uh, Pro-independence uh, I've, also, I've also found out that Duncan Edwards, who the sports centre's named after, um, was one of the Busby Babes. Yeah. Didn't know that. Either. Um, who died in the Munich air disaster. We look, Every day's a school day. Uh, thank you for that, Lark. What time can people get red box PMQs unpacked email in the inbox? 2.30. 2.30. If you keep saying it, there's no way you're allowed to miss your deadline. Like Thanks, Matt. <laughs> uh, Tim, busy week ahead of... What, 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 do, you, do you know what? I suppose it depends whether or not Nadeem Zahavi's still there by the weekend. Oh, I you. think it's very likely I'll be writing about what can only be described this week as the general mess. <laughs> What is it? How is it? Why is it? And what are they doing about it? Um, General mess could be at the moment. It's been quite dull. There's no, you know, each week I try to find a different subject for my long read, but this week um, it's just mess. Get stuck in. Get stuck in. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? <laughs>